Mark chapter 4. We wrap it up today. We also shift from parables back to narrative. <clears throat> so, uh, and actually, this is going to be um, the first in a series of uh, narrative events that uh, include the, the ideas of Christ's power and the fear of others. So, um, Mark is shifting from the theme of the gospel, the message of the gospel through these parables to fear and power. So, um, there you go. Now you can probably leave, right? All right. Picking up in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, or with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I forgot to pray for Randy earlier this uh, worship service. Be with him as he continues to deal with uh, vertigo and uh, give the doctors wisdom and may the treatment that they're providing for him accomplish its purpose, um, particularly with a wedding coming up. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you would help me to proclaim Jesus with all wisdom, admonishing and teaching, in order to present these people mature in Christ according to your good purposes. Uh, Strengthen me for this task, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, still living in Winter Haven, Florida, before I got married, uh, a friend and I used to go fishing quite a bit. Uh, He had the boat. Um, he had the trailer and he had the truck and it, basically it was an excuse to spend time with a friend. I, I'm not really big on fishing. Uh, so th- we went this one time and he had warned me before we left that he had been having some trouble with his outboard motor so we weren't exactly sure what to expect. Uh, so we unloaded, we got in the boat and the engine started up fine and everything worked and we went to the far side of the lake uh, and we found a nice spot, we thought, for fishing, uh, when that usually meant he caught a lot and I caught very little. That's what happened when we fished. Um, and then the wind started. And the waves started to pick up. <clears throat> and they got so that we got pushed into some weeds, and we had got the end of the anchor, and the boat was starting to kind of do this little thing here, and the waves were starting to come over. And then we, we looked... And we saw the storm clouds coming. Now, when you're in a metal boat, 
you're not, you really don't want to be on water when a storm with lightning is coming. Uh, so we, we pulled up anchor, and he started the engine, and we started to go very slowly back to the other side. It was, it was you know, it's not just the waves, but I mean, it was the clunk, clunk of the waves. But now the engine is not working right. It's going at like, you know, one-third speed, and, you know, the wind is getting harder, and it's coming, you know, directly into our face, and we keep turning around, and we keep seeing these clouds getting closer and closer, and we're beginning to wonder, are we going to make it there in time? Danger on the water. That's what we have today. Danger on the water. It's interesting that all, all three of the synoptic gospels, and for those of you who don't know what they are, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of these gospel accounts have this story in it. Okay? But there are slight differences in the story, which indicates to me that they're not coming from a common source, which those, uh, you know, they called why. I don't know why they called it why. But uh, there's supposedly this source that all three of them used, uh, which if all three of them have the same story, you'd figure it's all coming from the same source, if that's really where it came from. But what we find is that there are differences in this, which indicate to me anyway, that these are firsthand experiences and accounts. Why? Precisely because there are differences, however minor. I thought I would contact my friend. I haven't talked to him in a while, and so I just kind of shot him an instant message and said, hey, remember that time that uh, the storm came in when we were on the lake? He says, this is what I'm doing. I'm looking at, at this from uh, in the, the gospel account, and uh, you know, it's interesting that there are differences. How do you remember that day? It was the same event. But we had some slight differences in how we remembered the event, which happened almost 20 years ago. There were differences, not significant things. I thought it was maybe Dundee, and he said it was Lake Wales, but you know, they connect. And, uh, you know, I don't know where the lines are for the cities. could have been either of those two places. He couldn't quite remember why it took us so long to get across this lake and where that was sharp in my memory. Um, Slight differences, same event. And so we have the same thing here. For instance, one of the differences is Mark says, teacher, teacher. Another one says, Lord, Lord. Well, you know, if Peter's going teacher, teacher, and Matthew is going Lord, Lord, that's a reasonable difference, is it not? And that's the kind of differences that we see. There are things that Mark includes that the others leave out, but for some reason they're important to Mark, that they weren't important to Luke and to Matthew. And that's okay. But let's get to the text, not that stuff. How did they get into this mess where they almost lose their lives upon the Sea of Galilee? Mark mentions that that evening, okay, so it's almost nighttime, Jesus had been teaching the crowds, he'd been teaching them from the boat, this is near Capernaum, and Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Jesus 
remember, aware of his mission, aware of his calling, which is to teach the, the message of the kingdom, wants to proclaim the message of the kingdom throughout the area. And so we have our little map, I thought, I think. There we go. The other side, which we find from chapter 5, is known as the region of the Gerasenes, okay, because of the next story that happens. And so it's, it's not just a short little journey right there, but they're going to go south and east across the Sea of Galilee. You ought to give it, the, 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 the author of the map should have given it the full credit it deserves. Sea of Galilee, not lake. Okay? But this is no small thing. I mean, this is a journey of a number of miles, and we're not sure where uh, on this journey that this takes place, but it sounds like they're not close to shore when all of this takes place. Okay? They head for the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the boats. Okay? Now, Jesus is in one boat, but there were other boats in the, I think part of why Mark includes that is There were other witnesses to this. There were other people in other boats that can bear witness to what happened as this took place. And we've also, oddly enough, uh, digging in a kibbutz, they found this boat, which they believe to be a first century fishing boat from the Sea of Galilee. Okay? It's not the boat Jesus was on, but it's most likely very much like the boat that Jesus was on. And this is a boat that is approximately 27 feet long. Uh, it's about seven and a half feet wide at the, the widest point. And they estimate that it could carry about 15 people. So Jesus and all of his disciples uh, would have been able to fit within this boat. And uh, Jesus would be asleep on the stern of this boat, which, for those land lovers like me, is the back of the boat. Okay, it's the the wider part where Jesus could stretch out on this cushion uh, that is there. But we we have representative boats from that period of time, and so they're on three boats, or well, actually, I don't know, other boats, two plus boats, minimum three, I guess. Yeah. Because other boats, plural. So at least two other boats. So, going across the Sea of Galilee, and Mark records that a great windstorm arose. Now, it was not unusual for there to be storms upon the Sea of Galilee. Uh, You know, you've got a sea that is below sea level, right next to some great big mountains. There is a great temperature differential between those two, and you know what happens when there's a temperature differential. There are winds, and with winds come storms. And so it was not unusual for there to be storms upon the Sea of Galilee. What was unusual was the timing. Remember, it's nighttime. There were generally much fewer storms upon the Sea of Galilee at night, which is why that's when the men fished on the Sea of Galilee, was nighttime. Okay. So, thinking it's evening is coming, they think it's safe to cross the, the, the Sea of Galilee um, without being harassed by any storms, and yet here comes a storm. But it's not just a storm, it's a great storm. This repetition that we're going to see within this passage of great is one of the things that reminds us a lot or greatly, of the account that we find of the storm in Jonah. That's one of the things. 
Gadol, the great wind that, um, that emerged, the great storm. That's one of the things that just again and again in the, in the account in Jonah, great, great, great. And here we have it again, Megalon, great, 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 like a drumbeat that pounds through this particular story as well. Now, it was Jonah's disobedience that prompted God to send the great windstorm. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The, and I don't know how you think you can get away from the Lord of the land and the sea, but nonetheless, Jonah tried that disobedience makes us crazy. And Jonah was acting a little crazy at that point in time. And uh, he tries to get away, and God sends the storm so that he can't. But he, in fact, will have to go back to Nineveh and fulfill God's mission. Jesus is uh, not fleeing God's mission. He's trying to fulfill God's mission when this happens. Now, interestingly enough, I had started to read uh, for last week's sermon, uh, James Boyce's Two Cities, Two Loves. And in the midst of that, he mentions this story. And for some reason says that, he, that Satan stirred up the storm in order to kill Jesus. I'm like, I don't see that. I'm with you, Jerry. Don't see it. <laughs> now, he's probably taking that from the fact that uh, in, in Matthew's account... It talks about how certain, uh, Satan left him after the temptation in the wilderness and was, would come back again to test him again. But there's no indication here in the text, the specific text, that this was some sort of satanic event. Okay? And we'll actually see, I think, that it's not um, that later on. So, hold on. The text is silent as to the source. Uh, it, it could be to test... Um, Satan test like Satan tested Job. It could be perhaps to test not simply Jesus but his disciples. But I think the silence here is an implication that Jesus and his mission is what brings them the all of the disciples into hardship because Jesus is in control of history. We call this the doctrine of providence, and we see. That, that providence is limited not simply to the mission of Jesus, not simply to the disciples, but we should also understand that God providentially brings us through hardship. I want you to understand that the difficulties that you experience, they are not accidental. They are not simply coincidental. But they are things that you experience precisely because God has a plan and purpose for those hardships, even if he doesn't tell us what the plan and purpose for those hardships is. It's about trusting, ultimately, in the character of God. That he knows what he's doing, and that this world is really under his control. Jesus, in fact, does have a purpose for leading them into such difficulty. He has a purpose for their hardship and for ours. Peter, who, of course, is the one that Mark was depending upon in his gospel account, says in the fourth chapter of his letter, Beloved, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In a similar way, we can say, don't be surprised at the hardships that come upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening in your life. It's ordinary, and we should consider it as such. So, in answer to our first question, how did they get into this mess? Well, sometimes Jesus leads us into hardship. That's not exactly what you wanted to hear, but that is the implication of the text. But why? Why would Jesus lead them and therefore lead us into hardship? Remember, this is not simply a bad day. Okay? Uh, yesterday, I had the fun of fixing a leak in my irrigation, only for Asher to discover a second leak, and then my wife to point out a third leak, and I ran out of my, contact, my connectors, and I had to go to Ace Hardware and get new connectors, and I went to a different Ace than I usually go to, and they looked the same, but you know what? I had a hard time getting that tubing into that stupid little connector. It seemed much more difficult than before, and there I am, sitting on the ground going, nah! at the end of my rope because of a stupid irrigation thing. Okay, that's a, bad, that's a bad day, or it's a bad moment in a day. Okay? This was not that. This is an intense storm. The, the, the phraseology that Mark uses, it means to, to press home this idea. It's a great gale wind. The, the, the English translations don't quite get the, the, that there's three words kind of thrown in there. He really wants to press home the, the enormity of this storm. There is wind. There are sheets of rain. There's most likely thunder and lightning. This is threatening their lives. Wind. So unpredictable. Wind. So humbling. Because you cannot control it. It defies your control. You can't predict when it's going to show up. You can't predict how fast it's going to blow or any of that. Right now I'm reading John Newton's letters to his wife uh, on his, uh, one of his voyages to Africa. And he was talking about the wind, and he was excited because there had been some gale winds that were speeding them along home to England. And he was excited that they were making uh, seven to eight miles per hour. Well, the translation said miles, so I I don't know. Great progress, because the wind was blowing hard in the right direction, but many a captain would be frustrated for an unknown period of time because there was not wind. And there you sat, moved only by the tide, the current, and not by the wind, going slow, sort of like us in that fishing boat, but the engine didn't work right. 
Wind can show up at the wrong times, like if there's a California wildfire fanning the flames, moving them quickly, destroying more property. Wind is beyond our control. This wind that has shown up is stirring up the waves to such a great degree. And and, uh, Newton also talks about how high the waves could be over their heads. And the ship is just like, you don't know if it's going to be destroyed by these rather large waves. But we see that Mark talks talks to us about how the waves are breaking into the boat They're crashing over the bow of the boat. The boat is beginning to fill up. It's flooding. Okay. How many of you swim? How many of you want to swim in the Sea of Galilee at night with a raging gale storm? There's one of you, two of you. You must have death wishes. Oh, Jameson's not, he's he's semi committed to this event. Okay? You don't. Because you're, you're probably miles from shore. The waves are crashing over you. It is likely you will drown. That's if you know how to swim. And many people then didn't know how to swim. We swim because we recreate by swimming. We, we go to cool off. Uh, they didn't quite do that at that point in time. So some of these people, the fishermen might know how to swim, but if you were a tax collector, it's not like you had a pool at your house and you went swimming because you had an extra hour. Okay? And so all the other people probably don't know how to swim, and for them it is almost certain death unless they're able to cling to something that floats and it stays above the waves. Think of that painting. I forgot to throw that. I didn't want to put the Rembrandt painting because it indicated which one was Jesus with the little glow. There's no glow here. You don't know who Jesus is. No second commandment violations. You can tell Donna this, Rick. There are no second commandment violations in this sermon today, right? None. So, I don't want to swim in that. Karina wants to. All right. We'll get the waves going at your house soon, one of these days. So, here are these men. They're cold, they're wet, they're scared to death. They wake up Jesus. Whoop, wait a minute. (laughs) Jesus was asleep. Now, Jonah was asleep too, but Jonah was down in the hold because it was a much bigger ship. Uh, But somehow Jonah slept through them getting all of the cargo and tossing it overboard. I don't know how this happens, but here is Jesus on on the bow, uh, sorry, the stern of the boat on the cushion, but the waves are breaking all over this place. You hear the howling of the wind. He's not semi out of the elements like Jonah was, uh, although both of them were, you know, just trying to sleep in this thing. I, don't, I, can't, I can't sleep normally. I, I can't imagine sleeping like that. We're not sure if it's from exhaustion or trust, but either way, Jesus is sleeping. It's probably a combination of both. And so they wake up Jesus. But here's, here's where it really gets important. Do you not care that we are perishing? They're accusing Jesus. 
This is the heart of the issue. Their hearts. What's going through them. That somehow they believe Jesus could do something, but Jesus is doing nothing, and worse than doing nothing, he's asleep. Don't you care that we're perishing? They believe at that moment that Jesus does not care. And when we are in similar straits, maybe it's even simply as, as bad as the irrigation, don't you care, God? Isn't that what rises in our hearts and sometimes comes out of our lips and over our tongues? Don't you care? Don't you care about our financial struggles, Jesus? Don't you care about this disease that does not go away, Jesus? Don't you care about our church which struggles, Jesus? Jesus, don't you care about climate change? Jesus, don't you care about political chaos? The list could go on. Our hearts grow hard in the hardship. And we begin to doubt the very character of the One who came to rescue us by laying down His life for us. That's what we do. Well, Jesus first rebukes the storm, and then Jesus rebukes them. Uh, They should be grateful that he rebuked the storm first. They could hear him clearly because the wind had stopped and the waves had stopped and the thunder and lightning had stopped. They can hear this perfectly when they probably had to scream at Jesus for him to hear them. And he speaks, why were you so afraid? Jesus, there was a really bad storm. Jesus, I thought we were going to die. (laughs) Why were you afraid? Have you still no faith? That sounds harsh at first. This word that's used for afraid is also found in Revelation 21, and there it's used for the cowardly. And so it's not just, why are you afraid, but has more that connotation perhaps of, why are you so cowardly? Why were you crippled by fear? See, that's one of the things about being courageous. Courageous people experience fear. They experience fear just as much as the coward experiences fear, but they're not controlled by the fear. They press on despite the fear. And so uh, Jesus is, is not talking simply about why were you afraid, which makes perfect sense, but why were you cowards? In the fear? Why were you crippled in the fear? Why did you have no confidence in me? Jesus says in the fear. Why did you stop believing? Or why do you have, don't you have any faith yet? Let's think about this for a moment. Weren't they there when Jesus healed the leper? Yeah. 
weren't they there when Jesus healed the paralytic? Yeah. Weren't they there when Jesus cast out untold numbers of unclean spirits? Yeah. Shouldn't they have some faith in Jesus? Yeah. Similar for us. Haven't we read about how Jesus has healed the leper? Healed the paralytic? Cast out the demons? We didn't live it, but we believe it's true, right? And yet, like the disciples, we're so overcome with cowardice when trouble hits. Our our faith seems to dissipate in those moments of the hardship. The storm comes and we take our eyes off Jesus. We, We struggle to fix our eyes upon Him. I remember Hurricane, hurricane Jean back in 2004. Yay, it was the third hurricane that came that year. It was, it was only the second one that we were present for. And it came in the middle of the night. Amy was pregnant. The storm woke us up. So we were stirring around in the darkness and we could see the flashes of light. Not lightning. Transformers blowing. And then our power went bye-bye. And then we noticed the drip. And that's the fun part about the hurricane is you can't really walk outside to see what damage has been done to your roof. Fortunately, it was just that it had gotten in a vent and had dripped down through the vents. No, no damage had been done. But we didn't know that. And we're thinking, how much worse is this going to get? And thankfully, our phones were not dependent upon electricity. <laughs> and we called back home and pray for us. We don't know what's going on, but it's not going well. But we also broke open the hymn book. And by what little light we had, we sang some hymns to reorient ourselves and to remind us that we are not alone in this. His cross, His death, His resurrection should provide proof to us that Jesus is good, that Jesus does care more concrete uh, than what our hardships might try to tell us about Jesus. And so hardship reveals we struggle ultimately to believe that God is good. Let's shift. What does this hardship reveal about Jesus? Okay, again, During the storm, Jesus slept. He's like Jonah. We get a glimpse of his full humanity. He needed to rest. Okay? But we see that he he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. Jesus speaks not to Satan. Jesus speaks to the wind and to the rain. He speaks to the natural elements here. 
I think it's important for us to stop for a moment and recognize that Jesus is not doing incantations like Gandalf. Okay, there's no spells, no Harry Potterish thing that's going on right here. Okay, he's not conjuring up something. There's no sacrifice uh, like there is in Jonah, although ultimately it rests upon his sacrifice later. But he doesn't say, "Cast me into the sea." He's not like Pat Robertson who claims to have prayed hurricanes away. He's not like Fidel Castro. I remember there was one hurricane that missed Cuba, and they had news reports of of old ladies talking about how Castro had more power in his thumb uh, than these hurricanes did because he pushed it. He, Fidel Castro, kept the hurricane away. Jesus stopped the storm instantaneously stopped the storm it wasn't like he said peace be still and 20 minutes later it ended like it might normally did the implication here is that it stopped it it stopped exactly when he spoke it when he told it to stop and it wasn't a gradual decrease in the wind it was done End of sentence. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Before there was the great wind, now there is the great calm. We're reminded of Genesis 1 where God spoke and it was, let there be light, there was light. When God speaks, creation responds. We see in the Psalms, for instance, in places like 65, speaking of the Lord, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89, verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It is Yahweh, the Creator, who has power to do this, And so what we see is not just the full humanity of Jesus as He sleeps, but we see the full divinity of Jesus as He speaks and it happens. He is the ruler of the sea, the ruler of the storm, the ruler of the land. He is the one that Jonah was running away from. Instead of there being great rejoicing, we see that the disciples, just like the Gentile sailors in Jonah's story, are filled with a great fear. Again, great. Great wind. Great calm. Great fear. Not the same word or word group that is used about the fear earlier, the, them being afraid, them being cowardly. This is the one we're used to, the, you know, the one from which we get phobia. Reverence. Awe. That takes place. We see the mercy of God to, to Jonah's Gentile crew. We see God's mercy in this story to the disciples upon the boats 
that were bringing Jesus to the other side. We see in, in the account of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27, his mercy upon the soldiers and the sailors. That if they were to stick by Paul instead of killing all the prisoners, they'll live. But if they killed Paul and the other prisoners, they would die. We see the mercy of God, and the mercy of God produces reverence. Psalm 130, as we had earlier in our worship service. With you there is forgiveness of sin, therefore you are to be feared or reverenced. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. We usually don't think about fear as a fountain, right? And yet, the way the Scriptures understand the fear of the Lord, it is a fountain, not of death, but of life. We recognize from Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses tells them, do not be afraid, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. That you would hold God in this reverent awe, as, as greater and more powerful than anything you could ever imagine, as good to you, that you might walk in His ways, is what Moses gets at in Exodus 20. We see a similar idea in Ecclesiastes 12, uh, the end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so uh, this fear of the Lord is, is one that motivates us not to run away from God, but to seek Him, because in Him there's life, to, to walk in His ways, knowing that they are what life is like. We live in His world, His way, because He made it. This fear that they have is not like the fear they had of the storm. But it is great. And so they cry out, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey Him. He's the ruler of the sea and the storm. Can one who rules over seas and storms, the winds and the waves, can can that man help us? Yes, he can. That's what Mark wants us to know. That's what they had to learn. That this Jesus that they listened to as their rabbi was so much more than any other rabbi. He was God in the flesh. Jesus is more powerful and more uncontrollable than the storms. That's not great news. Unless you know that He's for you. Right? If that is your enemy you're in big trouble. 
you have the wrong kind of fear. But if you know he's for you, you have what Sinclair Ferguson calls the fear of a son or filial fear. Where you're drawn to, you find protection from, you have respect for, you, you recognize the authority of, that kind of fear. He's more powerful, more controllable than the storms. One of the things that John Newton did when he was out at sea is he would, after he became a Christian anyway, he would remember the many times that God had delivered him in the past. The times when he, sailor who couldn't swim, fell overboard and was rescued. The times when you know, the water swept someone two feet away overboard and not Newton. He remembered all of that and it fed his gratitude for mercy and grace. Jesus reveals that he's the Lord of nature in order to build their faith moving forward. And Mark records this so that you will know that he is the Lord of nature to build your faith moving forward. There was a quote from Corey Ten Boom that I ran across yesterday that I think is appropriate this morning. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Because you remember you're looking at the Lord of the storms, the Lord and ruler of nature. And so this hardship reveals that Jesus rules nature. And if we're to take all these threads and wrap them up, we'll see that as ruler of nature, Jesus deserves that reverent awe and trust from us. Well, as we uh, raced across the lake at agonizingly slow speed, my friend and I, I think, forgot that Jesus was in control of nature. Uh, Now, Jesus' being in control doesn't make nature any less dangerous, uh, but it, it did mean that what happened wouldn't be accidental or coincidental. As you can tell by the fact that I'm standing here, Jesus preserved us just as much as he preserved his disciples that day. It was just a little less spectacular. There was no calming of the storm, but we got out before the storm fully hit. When life is hard, make sure that your heart doesn't grow hard. And the only way to do that is to look to Jesus, who brings us through storms to reveal more about ourselves, that we might confess it, and more about himself, so that we will trust ourselves less and him more. I felt like I spent too long to say that. I'm sorry. But you have to go through the storm to get the benefit of that knowledge. Hopefully the sermon wasn't a storm. (laughs) Father, um, 
We're like those disciples that, that, that oftentimes we don't learn unless we go through it. We have to learn things the hard way. But, but help us not to get hardened along the hard way. In the midst of that, may we cry out to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Uh, as the one who has power and control and the one who will bring us through to the other side. However that might look. Help us to grow in trust. That we're not crippled by the frightful things that happen. So that our cry is not, don't you care about us, but more the gratitude of, thank you that you care about us. Work that in us by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.